spring again. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through 30. Now, some of you will notice, i got to give a little bit of backstory before we read here. You notice I'm skipping over the reading of 753 through 811, uh, the, the, the famous story of the woman caught in adultery, and, and it's because there's a little footnote that says the earliest manuscripts don't include this story. And, and I'm sure most of us read that and go, okay, I don't know what to do with that, and so I'm going to read it and carry on. Um, but part of what it says is, they found this story in a couple time, couple of places. They found the story connected to the Gospel of Luke. Um, they found it put at the end of the Gospel of John once or twice. Um, and so one of the things I just want to give a note to is it's really helpful that our translations are honest of saying most of the New Testament, we're confident this is God's Word, but this part, we're not. So here's a little note. Um, and so our text... And when you read the commentaries, you'll find guys who say, yeah, this is, there may be questions about it, but this, this sounds and smells like Jesus, so let's, let's preach it and teach it. Uh, that's like Dr. James Boyce from 10th Perez, that's exactly what he did. Every time I talk about 10th Perez, you guys are here, so. <laughs> um, and then there are other scholars who will, and pastors who will read this and say, we don't know, so I'm not going to preach it. And so what I'm going to do this morning is saying, every week my job is to say, this is God's Word, and in this case, this is a maybe, and so I'm, not just, I'm just not going to read it even as I teach it. <laughs> so if you have questions, you want to go into a deeper dive into the arguments, I mean, it, it involves some um, just looking at the fact that we have different manuscripts. Textual criticism is the, the technical term, and um, the people who find that exciting are textual critics. <laughs> and, and the rest of us, it's, it's my job is this is what part of the training is saying, here are what the guys, what the, the scholars are saying, and here's the ones I trust. Um, so, as was what I want to do this morning, is take this woman who's caught in adultery and see it as an illustration of who Jesus is as the light of the world, uh, who has plenty to judge, but as he says, I judge no one. And that, that's good news for us. And so let's read our, our passage and pray. And again, if you have questions about that and want to go deeper, I'm happy to talk to you about it. This is God's word. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. 
So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. His word is true and trustworthy. He's spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, from Jesus we have received grace upon grace. And today we get to see how that grace comes to us through Christ's wisdom and through his compassion. And, and so I pray that as we see Jesus and his compassion shining brightly here for, for moral failures like us, uh, that his kindness would lead us to repentance and that his kindness to us would equip us to love others, love our neighbors as we have been loved. So fill us with your spirit that we might believe in him and be what Jesus calls the church to be, the light of the world filled with his light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, every year since I've been here, we've ended our Christmas Eve service uh, singing Silent Night uh, by candlelight. You know, we, we sing these beautiful Christmas hymns of, of these, these verses, right? Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of thy redeeming grace. And of course, because it's Christmas and uh, we're, we're all together as, as a church family and our hearts are full with, of excitement, you know, it's just this beautiful Christmas moment, right? That, that Christ is the light of the world. The problem is, is it's really easy in the, the, the sentimentality of the season to miss out on the spiritual insult that comes with claiming who Jesus is as the light of the world. That, that, that to truly enjoy the season, to truly rejoice, to, to sing joy to the world that, that Christ has come, we have to acknowledge the darkness. Um, and that's, that's part of the claim that Jesus is saying here uh, and he's been saying all along in the Gospel of John, over and over and over again, is that without Christ, all of humanity dwells in darkness. Not able to see clearly, you're not knowing where you are going, what you are doing, like everyone else kind of making it up as you go along, uh, haunted by the darkness of death rather than living in the light of life. And that's straight out of the Old Testament. Right? 
Isaiah 5, for example, says, if you dwell in darkness, it's a place of moral confusion. Where, where you call evil good and good evil, you put darkness for light and light for darkness, it's a people living as wise in their own eyes. Everybody doing what they see is what works for them. It's confusing. Or Isaiah 9 says, uh, we, the, we, you heard a little bit this morning in the, in the Advent reading, right? We dwell in deep darkness, living in the gloom of anguish, haunted by death, right? And so along comes Jesus as the light. That's what he says here in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And what's surprising about Jesus as the light of the world is light by nature judges the dark. I mean, that was earlier in John chapter 3. Uh, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works be exposed. One of the scariest things you can do is to have everything be seen and known by a holy God who dwells in light. And yet, at the same time, the light of the world in verse 15 says, I judge no one. Right? Or later in John, I'll say, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so what we're going to look at this morning as we meditate specifically on the, this woman caught in adultery as the light of the world, we're going to look in See Jesus and how he treats sinners, how he treats people as they are. And and as Tim Keller, he says this better than I could, he says, in Jesus, he combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. He is the most absolutely unsurpassed, integrated personality, balanced, wise human being we've we've ever seen. So he's not just a kind of compromise halfway between strong and tender, rather he is just and righteous to the nth degree, and he is compassionate and melt-in-your-mouth gentle to the nth degree. These two traits don't fight in him. They unite in him. And so we get to see Jesus compassionate and just as he catches people in sin. And how does he treat them? And so let, let's meditate on what, how, how Jesus cares for those who've been caught. And so that, that's point one. To come to the light of the world is to be exposed. All right, so if you look at uh, 7.52 and, and where we started here, all right, one of the main arguments for keeping the story of the woman caught in adultery in the Bible is it's just an awkward gap when you pull it out. All right? Chapter 7 ends with, those in authority who want to kill Jesus, they don't trust him. They don't think he's from God. They don't believe him. That's what we heard read. Jesus says, you don't know me, you're going to die in your sins. Right? And so you have this internal conversation of the rulers, and then you get to 8.12, and all of a sudden Jesus is speaking to them. It's like he's jumped into a conversation that he wasn't a part of. Now, the, the them in verse 12 that Jesus says, I am the light of the world with the story in it is the, the judgmental Pharisees who've tried to have this woman put to death under the law by Jesus. And so look at her, All right? You have this woman who's standing in the midst of them who has been brought in by the leaders. A giant LED spotlight is shining on her and her sin, and, and the rulers want to know how Jesus, O oh gracious one, 
who claims to be from the Father, who claims to be a a better teacher of the law than us, how are you going to treat her? I mean, that's the question we all have, right? If you're going to come to God as a, a morally imperfect person, how will Jesus treat you? I mean, to be human, everyone in this room has been caught in sin at some point. I mean, you might not have owned it, but you've been caught, right? And so this, this text is a grace test. Does grace have any uh, uh, strength to it? Does it have any ability to redeem a real sinner? Will it comfort as well as challenge someone who has clearly broken God's law? The Pharisees, this is a test because they want to expose Jesus as a fraud. They want, they want the crowds in particular to see Jesus as, as weak, um, that his claims not be aligned with the God of the Bible, right? Because on the one hand, the law of Moses demands justice. A person caught in adultery, according to Leviticus and according to Deuteronomy, uh, they're, they're there's a, it's a death sentence, right? And so they want Jesus to be the kind of teacher who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, right? Bring me your sick, your unrighteous, your moral failures, and find rest so that they may be stoned, right? The idea is that if he upholds the law, Jesus' popularity is going to go down. Who's going to want to trust him? Right? And if Jesus lets her off the hook, well, then how can he claim to be from God? Because no one from God is going to um, downplay the power and importance and centrality of keeping God's law. Right? How can anyone claim to be equal with the Father and then reject the light of Torah, the light of the law? And so the, the, te- the grace test right, is Jesus. Is your light a rigid, unforgiving law? Or is it a squishy love right, that kind of bends and moves as, as is convenient? Right? Is Jesus, are you compassionate or are you condemning? Right? And, I mean, don't you feel that when, when you try and talk about God's law and, and try and love real people who've made mistakes and who've offended and who've hurt you? Because right? on the one hand, if you're compassionate and just let them off the hook, Where's the justice? Right? Feels like they're not going to learn anything from their mistakes if there's no punishment. But if you choose law over love and say, well, they're guilty, people are going to be crushed. Moral failures would feel exposed and right, they're not going to want to run to Jesus for comfort. If all they get is law, do better, try harder. You should have known better. Right? The law demands justice. And it, I don't know, it's escalated even more in, to, when you start talking about sexual sin in our culture. Right? If you're soft on these kinds of sexual immorality things, on adultery and all, all of those kinds of sins... Well, then the accusation is you don't care about the Bible. You don't care about law. You don't care about Jesus' words. He says things like, don't even lust after a person in your own heart. Right? 
Nobody should weaken God's law. That's what Jesus said, right? Not one iota is going to pass away from God's law before it's fulfilled. But if you let the law expose people and are honest about their sin and say God does not approve of that, there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live, well, you're just judgmental and you're the reason LGBT kids are killing themselves. So Jesus, which is it? Compassion or condemnation? Interestingly, that, that tension is nothing new. That's part of the reason there's controversy around this passage. Um, so early church leaders like Ambrose and Augustine, these guys were in the 3rd and 4th century. They say one of the reasons it was removed by parts of the, the early church is because it sounded like Jesus was soft on adultery. That they were weak on the law. And that people would read this story and feel free to sin in this way, and Jesus is going to forgive it anyway. And, and so one of the arguments on, for why this was, as a little footnote, is that some people in power just said, we don't want us to look like the pagans who are soft on sexual things. And so they pulled it out. Because the surrounding culture in the ancient world, just like us, um, depending on the context and who the person is, sexual immorality was, was normal. And Christians were weird because they didn't participate in it or preached against it. And so in other words, there has just been plenty of evidence that uh, moral prejudice moved some, not all, some in the early church to not, to not want to preach and teach the story, to, to cut it out of their Bibles. Because they're like us, right? We're, we're trying to reconcile Jesus, the light of the world, exposing sin, who then at the same time says, I judge no one, yet go and sin no more. To hold together law and love, uh, to hold together com- compassion and healthy shame, right? Biblical shame. So, what does Jesus do? That's, let's, this is a brilliant story because the, look at the horror that Jesus is exposing here as the light of the world. And it's, to your surprise, it's, it's not the adultery. The uglier sin is actually the injustice of those bringing the woman caught in adultery. Right? So, look, the only way a person could be legally put to death under the Old Testament law was if there were two witnesses. Jesus alluded to it in our reading. So for this woman to be put to death, at least two people had to see the act in progress and then they had to have their testimony standing up, stand up to cross-examination. Right? They had to agree on the details. Right? They had to be telling the truth. Um, and so in general, for this particular kind of crime, the burden of proof was so high, it's virtually impossible to, to convict someone on this. Right? So for this woman to be caught, to be dragged here, surrounded by a bunch of men who want to see her uh, put to death just to prove a point... Um, the guy has to either be a plant, right? Be in on the plan all along. There had to be some kind of collusion to say, okay, we want to catch Jesus. We had this young woman here. 
We've got the guy who's a willing participant. We've got to be able to prove that she did it so that we can convict her under the law. The problem is, where is the guy? Where's the man? I mean, the law of Moses was fair. It was just. It was God's good law. It was unique in that it held men and women accountable to the standard of self-control. Adultery was held. uh, The law of adultery was um, held against both man and woman. It wasn't just for a select few to keep. So what should be happening is the man and woman side by side, guilty and ashamed, part of this conversation. But he's gone. So it makes you wonder, did he get promised immunity to participate? You just don't know. They don't don't give you the details. But one more important detail to help you understand how ugly this is, the only Old Testament law that calls for death by stoning is for uh, when a betrothed woman commits adultery. And in general, in the ancient world, if you're betrothed as a woman... You're likely a teenager. So it is highly likely, based on the the clues we have, that this person being used by the religious authorities to trap Jesus is a young teenage girl, possibly 14 or 15. And she's the one that they have chosen to trap Jesus by by using the, 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 what's called the sin of partiality. I mean, this is really dark. This is like the ugliest and worst of spiritual abuse, of where those in power are supposed to protect you to stand on the side of the oppressed. Right? They're using her and just not holding the, the standard of the law to everybody. They're not playing fair. Right? And so Jesus exposes that here in this text. He showing that they are selective and impartial in applying the law when he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I think he's just calling them out. Because look at what he, what he does. Is he bends down and starts writing on the ground, and you go, everybody wants to know, what, what, what was Jesus drawing in the sand? I mean, we have guesses. Maybe this is an allusion to the finger of God writing out the law. In the dirt, right? just writing out the Ten Commandments, which is why everyone leaves condemned by that law. Or maybe it's just a eyewitness detail, which is what it is, of him just doodling in the sand, thinking while they continue to pester him for a decision. We don't really know. What we do know is that Jesus stands up and says, let the one without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then they all leave, convicted by the law. Once it's held up without partiality, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who can stand? Yeah, the, it says the, old, the eldest leave first. Yeah. We have a lot more on our conscience the older you get. Right. So, what is Jesus teaching us about how to care for sinners. I mean, it's clearly not designed to keep us from declaring what's right and wrong. Because he says, go and sin no more. He's not questioning the validity of the, the moral command. 
Now, one of the purposes of the law is to show us our need for redemption, to, to show us our imperfections. And so Jesus here tells these abusive leaders, shine the light of God's law on yourself first before you shine it on others to shame them. Right? He without sin, cast the first stone. Look at yourself. You know, everyone applies God's law differently when you finally join the community of real sinners. Makes you a lot slower to judge. Right? Look at the look at the darkness. This is a, a wide, a worldwide condemnation. If Jesus is the light of the world, we are dark. The law exposes all of us at some point if we're not going to play favorites. Right? And what's interesting is law and love people are both selective when it comes to applying the law to themselves and to others, right? If you're all about the law and there are people who should do what is right and they should know what is right and they shouldn't screw up, right? You're going to feel the temptation to apply God's law in such a way that lets us off the hook and comes down harder on others. And you're going to look more at what you've done good lately rather than being honest about what you haven't done that you're trying to keep in the dark. You tend to be moralistic, and nobody wants to be caught in sin by these guys, <laughs> right? And so they're just selective about which laws they apply, right? I'm good at this thing, but I'm going to condemn you with that, this thing I'm good at and not talk about the thing I'm bad at. But the, the love people are selective about God's law, too, because they take this really good impulse, which is to love people. I mean, shame is awful. Nobody likes that feeling. And out of a desire to save people from the pain of their shame, it's tempting to want to lessen the law, to change the law, to weaken the law, to say it's not that bad. Right? Or things like, God will forgive, it's not that big of a deal. God will forgive because it's his job and not let people feel the, the weight of breaking God's good and holy law, of causing harm. Right? And the scriptures will not let you play favorites, uh, be selective. So James chapter 2, for example, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you hear what James said? Right? You break one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. Right? Sure, some sins harm, cause greater harm. But when it comes to being the light of the world versus every human being called to be perfect as God is perfect, who can stand? 
And so, Jesus, the light of the world, is what he does. He exposes sin. If you come to him, he's going to be honest, right? He's going to show you what's good and what's evil. He's going to reveal the, the depths of depravity in every human heart. We're going to see how he treats you in a moment. But part of the purpose of God's law is to shine a light on all the ways we do not love. Because if you're going to keep the law, you're going to love perfectly. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll love God. So, as those condemned, where do you run when you're exposed, when you're caught? And, and that's the second point here, is we're all exposed by the law. We're co- we have to run to Jesus, the light of the world. And there's two verses here I want to zero in on. All right, one, here's Jesus' response as everyone walks away. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I do not condemn you. Verse 15, in comparison to the judgmental Pharisees, the judgmental world, Jesus says, I, I judge no one. And so how can Jesus say, I, I don't condemn you? Where does he get that authority from? How can he let an adulteress walk away? Right? And so one, it, look at this, Jesus says, sin no more. He is making clear that what she did is not okay. Right? It's, it's a violation of the law. It's sin. And sin is any violation of God's moral standard. Any lack of conformity unto God's laws, the catechism says. Right? She's guilty. And yet, in the Gospel of John, this is how the logic works, right? Jesus says, whoever believes in me is not condemned right now. It's before he goes to the cross. And then he goes on to say to these guys that he's in uh, discussion with, unless you come to me, you're going to die in your sins. Unless you believe in me, you're going to perish. In other words, unless you believe in Christ, you are condemned. Stand condemned under God's law. Open to God's judgment when Jesus returns. But at this point, the reason Jesus can say to those condemned by the law, I do not judge you, It's because of what he's going to do. That's what the Gospel of John is here for. (laughs) Right? You deserve death. I'm going to die so you can walk in the light of life. You deserve stones. Well, they're going to stone me so you can be embraced by grace. Right? Chapter 8, interestingly, begins with stones aimed at a sinner, but chapter 8 ends with stones being lifted up to be thrown at Jesus because of who he claims to be. And so, what the, the law's purpose is to show us the darkness of our hearts, that we deserve justice. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. The light of the world dies in darkness on the cross, bearing the judgment we deserve, so that all who believe in him is not condemned already, are not condemned already. So you don't die in your sins, right? Right? And that's where Jesus goes at the end of 
chapter 8, because if you look at verse uh, 28, right, Jesus says to these, the Pharisees, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing on my own authority and speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, for He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now, where does Jesus get the authority to not judge sinners? to not condemn, to, to forgive sins. I mean, there's subtle illusion, it's who he is. I am he, right? the Lord who made you. But he calls himself the Son of Man, who is, from the Old Testament scriptures, the judge of the earth. Right? And he says, when you have lifted up, literally, it's hanging Jesus from the tree, when you've lifted up the Son of Man to be judged, then you will know that he is the authority sent by the Father to forgive sin, to speak as the Father taught him. And when you see him judged, condemned to death on a cross, bearing the curse of the law, which is death, then you will know it is he. This is the one who has the authority to give grace upon grace from his fullness. And so, this is where you go when you're caught in sin, right? Because if you run to the law, you're either going to avoid condemnation by some kind of blanket, ah, it'll be okay, and shame is still going to follow you, <laughs> or it's going to crush you. But if you look in awe at Christ, at the cross, the one who has always done what is pleasing to the Father, of which no one in this room can say, <laughs> or in this world, and see him willingly choosing to be condemned so that you may be justified in God's sight. Right? That is someone worth following to walk in his light. Because you know when he shines the light of his grace upon you and exposes your sin, it's not to crush you. It's not to condemn you. It's to heal you, to help you. Right? This is amazing grace. That's what Christmas is about. God, the judge, born to pour out grace and mercy upon real sinners. So what do you do when you're caught in sin, when your conscience is accusing you with the very reality, the truth of what you have done? Right? Jesus is not denying that this young woman is guilty. Right? And you can just feel the, the bright, exposing light highlighting your failure, where do you go? You have to run to Christ. That's what John will say, God is greater than your conscience. God the Father sent the Son. Jesus said, I judge no one on God the Father's authority. And so if God the Father and God the Son do not condemn you because that sin has been paid for at the cross, why are you beating yourself up over it? You know, we, we say things like, I can't forgive myself. All right? I mean, do you have more authority than God the Father and God the Son? You know, bring it to the light of the world. Let it be exposed. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive those sins. See, to be a Christian is to learn, and this is a process, is to learn how to live in light of God's just judgment on the cross. 
That's what justification is, right? That one-time act where you are declared right in God's sight, where now Jesus said, I have always done what is pleasing in the eyes of my Father. If, if you have given the gift of Christ's righteousness through faith, that means God can say that about you. It's imputed to you in Christ. It's not reality yet on this side of heaven. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. You are treated that though you have uh, broken every single commandment and are inclined to continue to break them, you're still treated as if you have kept every single one of them. And then at the same time, you receive that grace. Jesus says, go and sin no more. In other words, something needs to change. Let my grace warm you so that you want to follow my ways. So let's, let's apply this. How are you going to respond then as a recipient of grace when you catch someone else sinning? Right, notice I said um, when, not if. Right? Kids, you're going to catch your parents breaking God's law. And parents, I've, we're going to catch our kids. If you're a part of any church community, you're going to see, see some stuff. Right? Your spouse, part of the joy of getting married is your spouse hearing what you say when you stub your toe <laughs> or when you hit your finger with a hammer. Right? Most of us don't break out in the doxology. All right? And so one pastor said it this way, that it's not a matter of if but when you're going to catch someone and you're going to have every right to shame them. Right? They actually did something wrong. You have the right to embarrass and humiliate them. You have the right to condemn them and say, how dare you, you sinner. But at the exact same time, you have the opportunity to, to give up your rights in order to demonstrate forgiveness and grace. To which I ask, what, which light will you shine? Right? The light of Christ or the light of the law? I think this passage helps us as a church as well, because how do we deal with sin and community? How should your leaders respond when you are caught in some kind of horrendous moral failure? Right? And the answer is, it's, it's similar to this. Um, don't be surprised that people break God's law in God's church because Christ came for lawbreakers. And our job is to grieve the pain that sin has caused, pour out the grace of Jesus and say, look, Christ died for that. Should you, if you trust him, you're going to have to take your, your guilt-plagued, shame-haunted conscience to the cross. And... We're going to have to talk about how, how, what it looks like to go and sin no more. Right? That these things are not okay, and, and counts, through counseling and care, things need to change. Right? So if you think about this care, one, you have to bring the sin into the light. If we get caught, bring it into the light. That's what Jesus does. Go and sin no more um, is saying it's not okay. It's a violation of God's law. And this is, this is what John tells us in 1 John, right? If, if you walk in the light, you're going to confess your sin. Anyone who says they're without sin is just lying to themselves. You deceive yourself. Uh, it, do, you, do you believe that it's an act of love to tell someone what is right, to declare what is wrong, 
declare there's a way to live that causes harm and there's a way to live that helps humans flourish according to God's commands. It's how he designed you. It's how he designed the world. Right? So we've got to bring sin into the light and, and name it. Let's call it what it is. But second, mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? We get to say to sinners, Christ died for that. Will you trust him? If you don't, Jesus says, those who don't trust in me, they're going to die in their sins. This is going to, it's going to crush you now and it's going to crush you in the future. Then the third part, of course, is go and sin no more, which is follow Jesus in the light of life. And, and this is the other part of the gift of grace is grace always comes with this challenge to, to, to let grace interrupt our self-destructive behavior. All right? I mean, that's what sin is. It's, it's, it's an offense against God, and it's also a harmful behavior. And so it's really easy to want to read this story and say, well, she received grace, she received forgiveness, Jesus just let her go scot-free, no consequences. But it came with a, a really difficult challenge. She's got to live with this. Go and sin no more. It's a call to obedience. Right? I mean, Paul, Paul will say, you are in Christ, therefore obey. Right? The, the, the indicative and the imperative come together. Don't separate them. The, the who you are and what, what Jesus tells you to do, don't separate them. No, real grace right, interrupts our selfish habits, and you have to find a new way to walk, a new way to live. Because right? it immediately goes from go and sin no more in Jesus' invitation to uh, walk in the light of life. And we'll talk more about that next week, about the walking is, but walking in the Hebrew way of, of thinking is just your whole lifestyle, your patterns, the places you go, the people you see, the way you think, the way you act, the way you do. Right. So it, it turns out, and this is how I'll, I'll conclude here. It turns out that one of the best gifts I think we can receive as a human being is to get caught as a sinner. Right? To have the light of the world show you your need for a savior. Have him shine a light on the darkness of your heart. Right? It's a gift, even though it doesn't feel like it at all in the moment. I'm saying these things to persuade myself as well. Right? But it, it's what John says, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? So notice what John says. Walking in the light, part of the pattern of walking in the light is confessing your sins in the light. And that's one of the ways we have fellowship with one another because Christ cleanses all sin, right? So it's part of it is just walk, knowing Jesus brings you into the light. You have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. But we also have fellowship with one another. That's what the church is, a community of sinners who've been caught 
condemned under the law, set free by grace, sent out into the world, armed with God's compassion, shining the light of, of Christ's grace. And so, may God give us the ability to do that, to love sinners well. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this kindness that we saw in Jesus this morning. Persuade our unbelief uh, to, to run to Christ uh, for forgiveness of sins, to believe that your justice is now on our side, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins because it's been paid for. And so I pray for Hope Church that as we fellowship with one another and we catch each other sinning, Lord, that you would equip us to show one another grace and forgiveness, to love one another as we have been loved. And as we do that, that that would be a, a testimony to one another and to others that Christ is among us. So continue to grow us in the grace that we've received and the knowledge of our Savior Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.